Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, do take your seats. God is awesome, right? And for the next uh, few moments, I get the incredible privilege of, of talking about the grace that uh, we just sing about that means no matter what we've done, no matter what we've experienced, uh, God forgives us and God sets us free. God heals us. Uh, God delivers us. We're concluding our series, Hopeful, with a message entitled, Hope Through Our Failure. And the idea today is pretty simple. Uh, we're going to talk about three types of failure. First, firstly, failure as a scar that isn't fatal, failure as a sin that can be forgiven, and then failure as a test that can be overcome. Uh, I want to begin by giving you this idea. Failure for many of us here is a scar that isn't fatal. The scriptures teach that just as success is never final, so too failure is never fatal. Failure, like scars, don't go away, but they can shrink as we grow in the power of God's grace. Let me explain it to you like this. When I was a child, up until about 12 or 13 years of age, I think I must have had over 20 surgeries. Many of them were on my ears. One of them was on my knee. Another one was on my hip. And the one on the hip was the most painful of all of them. It basically meant that I was unable to go to school for a two-year period of time, about 18 months consecutively, uh, missed a lot of the education in my elementary school, uh, basically was unable to walk. I had a plaster cast from my neck to the tip of my toes with two holes in obvious places. You can guess what that is. But I, I found myself laying on my bed in my living room for months on end, listening to my friends play outside, thinking this isn't fair. The scar that I would look at on my hip as a seven-year-old boy extended from my hip to my knee. I tell you, today it's about that big. Why? Because I've grown. That was an intensely, emotionally traumatic season in my life. Never knew whether I would walk again. They did an experimental surgery on me in Wales. Only one procedure of its kind had been performed, and that was in America, and they didn't know whether it would work. Praise God, it worked. But it's a scar that's there. And I can look back at that, and I still can remember it. I still remember what it's like to lay on that bed and wonder, what if? I still remember it. You see, even though I can walk, even though everything went well, even though I found Christ, the reality is God didn't give me amnesia when he gave me salvation. I still can remember. I still know what that's like. But the good news in all of this is failure is like a scar. You may be able to look at certain things in your life and think, I can't believe this. You still may be able to feel it, to sense it. You may have to wrestle with it now and again, but the good news is it isn't fatal because failure like this is a scar that you grow through when you grow in grace. I want to give you an example of this, a couple of examples of this in the Scriptures. One example of this is a guy by the name of John Mark. We're introduced to John Mark in Acts chapter 12 in a story where Peter is in prison and the church are in John Mark's mother's house praying for Peter. 
God, they're praying, will you do something great and release Peter from prison? And guess what? An angel answers their prayers. Please, God answers their prayers, sends an angel to the prison. Uh, Peter is released from prison, walks to John Mark's house or John Mark's mother's house, knocks on the door. They're like, what's happening? They're in a prayer meeting, you know, and the things of the Spirit. They go and answer the door. Peter's standing there. Literally, they slam the door in his face because they can't believe God has answered their prayers that quickly. And they go back in. Hey, Peter's at the door. Well, let him in. That, that's John Mark. We're introduced to John Mark in, in that scenario. Later in that chapter, in Acts chapter 12, Paul and Barnabas decide to take John Mark with them on their mission trip. Acts chapter 13 and verse 5 tells us that they label John Mark their helper, this servant. Everything seems to be going well, except when they get to a place called Pamphylia. In Pamphylia, for some reason, John Mark returns to Jerusalem. We don't know why, but this is what we read happened. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark. Now, where have we known Barnabas before? A couple of weeks ago, he's the guy introduced as giving all of the generosity. Why is he introduced? Because he gave more than anybody else? No, because he was going to be important for the rest of the story. That Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the guy who believes in other people when other people, even apostles, don't. Okay, John, also called Mark, with them. Barnabas wanted to take them. But Paul didn't think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement, that is an understatement from the Greek, okay? They fell out big time that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left Look at this, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. If two people are arguing so badly that they part ways, the church basically said, there you go in the grace of God. May God be with you. We read that John Mark goes to Cyprus. That's interesting because in Cyprus, that's the there was a churches there, the pastoral epistle of Titus is written to, uh, by Paul to Titus, who's leading churches in Cyprus. Cyprus, we know, is a list of people that are there in the number of people who become uh, Christians in Acts chapter 2. There was a large Jewish contingent there. And the Greek helps us realize that probably the reason that Barnabas and Paul had an argument over John Mark was because John Mark had a problem with Paul's ministry to Gentiles. He just didn't like this idea. He wasn't comfortable with this idea of God just reaching Gentiles. We know Peter had a problem with this. We read about Paul and Peter's conflict in Galatians 1 and 2. So basically, John Mark here misunderstood the radical grace of God, was uncomfortable with it, and deserted them. Went to Jerusalem. Barnabas wants to give the guy another shot because that's Barnabas. Paul doesn't. Now, we don't know how this scenario was resolved, but it was. A couple of scriptures become really important. Have a look at the first one. Paul, writing in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, by the way, Craigreece.org, if you follow me on my blog, I'm blogging every day through 2 Timothy. It really spoke to me at the start of the year, and I want to share that with you. But in 2 Timothy 4, what we read Paul saying is, only Luke is with me. Now, this is important because Paul's about to die. This is the last letter that he wrote, okay? Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you 
John, who's also called Mark, that's the guy, bring him with you because he is what? Helpful to me in my ministry. What happened? What happened? Honestly, we, we don't know. But what we do know is in Colossians 4.10, Paul writes this, my fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark. The cousin of Barnabas, ah, new information. Maybe that's part of the reason that Barnabas is so pro-John Mark is because they're related. Well, maybe it's because Barnabas just has a really good read on people. Now, I love this next part. Look at this. You have received instructions about him. About who? John Mark. If he comes to you, you better welcome him. That's basically the point. Now, from my memory, there's only one point in time that I think that Paul writes something like this. It's actually, again, to Colossians. It's with regards to a runaway slave called Onesimus who ran away from a guy called Philemon. Philemon had this house, and the church in Colossae met in Philemon's house. Onesimus ran away, and by some strange twist of circumstances, finds himself in Rome with Paul. Paul leads him to Christ, and then Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, back to the Colossian church, kind of with his tail between his legs. You've been a bad boy. And gives instructions to Philemon, that's the letter, about what he should do with Onesimus. Why? Because Onesimus could have been executed for what he had done. Instructions. The word instructions here means commands. Now, now think about this. We're talking about failure, right? The type of failure we need to grow through. The type of failure we need to go through, not run away from. How would you feel if your failure was so well known that someone with that kind of clout would have to write a letter to make sure that the people would treat you properly? Would you want to be involved in a community like that? Or would the easiest thing for you to do is to walk the other direction? How many people do you know who once sat in a church, maybe even in this one, and because of failure and the harshness with which they were uh, responded to meant that they couldn't step back in. Church, one of the hardest things to do when we failed of some kind, and the failure, especially if the failure is open, is to decide to grow through it, to go through it, and to step into it in the context of community rather than to step away. When Vipka and I were married, uh, we spent the first six months of our married life in Wales. She loved it so much that we had to leave. Uh, now, seriously, we were there in Wales, just recognized God had a, another kind of call on our life, and so we decided that we were going to move from Wales to Germany. I was going to try and find some job of some kind. Vipka could earn more money over there working in her medical profession, and then basically we were going to pay for the postgrad studies in cash and step back into ministry. It was going to be a couple of years that we were going to take out of ministry to really do what God had called us to do. The problem with this was in Wales at that point in time, a number of people really believed that we were doing the wrong thing. They, they even turn to me and say, you are stepping out of God's will. This is not what God wants you to do. Have you ever had a season in your life where other people know more about God's will for you than you do? 
That's what, we moved to Germany. It was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday. On the Thursday, I'm sitting in a, in a, in a bank, okay, with an interview with Vipka's father, who was like director of a number of banks and the guy who ran the banks. And uh, he basically looked at me and said, okay, Mr. Reese, uh, this is Thursday on Monday morning. I want you to be at 7 a.m. in Camden, a little German town, uh, where you will work on a cash desk. I looked at him and I said, you kind of got to be kidding me. What I felt like saying was, are you nuts? A, I don't speak German. I don't speak a word of German. I kind of thought you'd give me a job in a filing room where I didn't have to speak any German. I don't speak German. And secondly, I don't know anything about the German banking system. I'm a pastor, not a banker. And I looked at him, and Herr Richter was his name. He looked at me, and he said, Mr. Reese, he said, do you know how much people spend in order to learn German? You will be at Camden at 7 o'clock on Monday morning. Very nice meeting you. Meeting over. So 7 o'clock the Monday morning, been in Germany about a week, having crammed all of the German banking words into my head as I could possibly muster over the weekend. I ended up in that, in that bank, and for the next three months, I went through what I would consider to be my hell on earth experience. It was awful. I felt like I was completely over my head, I was out of my depth, and I felt I was failing. And do you know what that did for me? What that did for me is it made me step back from conversations, from relationships, from everything, because I felt overwhelmed, out of my depth, out of my league, and I insulated myself. It went that way for a little while, and I thank God for my wife, because my wife looked at me, and she said, Craig, what are you going to do with this? Because it can't go on this way. She said, look, either you've got to embrace this challenge and step into it and get on with it, or this isn't going to work well. This isn't working. You're isolating yourself from friends, from everybody else. Step in or step out. She was right. See, I felt like I was failing. And because I felt like a failure, what I was tempted to do was to step back, especially because I felt my failure was known, rather than just step in and push on through. I heeded Vipka's words, and she was right. And guess what? I grew through it. I could speak German. I started to laugh at myself when I would make a mistake. And at the end of the time, the, the bank offered to extend my contract and even give me the main cash desk. All of that was possible because in the moment when I felt like a failure, someone spoke God's word to me and said, step into it, don't step away from it. Church was true for me, it's true for you too. There are seasons in life when it doesn't go well, but the worst thing that we can do is to step away. You see, failure isn't always a sign that we can't cut it. We neither forget failure nor allow it to define us. Rather, we grow through it without having to hide it. Most of us probably go through seasons like this. And I tell you what, I'm a different person today because I embraced that challenge, one of the hardest challenges of my life, moving to a new country, being thrust into a job that I didn't understand in a language I could not speak. In my mind, that is not possible. But guess what? With God, all things are possible. And if God calls you into something, 
have the face to step into it because you will grow through it. Now, again, the temptation here is to do what? To feel overwhelmed and to step back. We get an example of that in the Old Testament, too, with Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 17 and 18. We'll talk about his experience. He was an incredible guy. He could do incredible things, but he had one nemesis, one person who made him go weak at the knees, and it was Queen Jezebel. That woman brought him to his knees. Oh, he could face her husband, no problem at all, 1 Kings 17 and 18. He could even face hundreds and hundreds of false prophets. But that woman, she spoke, he ran. And in 1 Kings 19, verses 3 and 4, we read that he ran to the point of being so exhausted, so distressed, so depressed, that he wanted to die, literally. See, he got to the end of himself. And then in that moment when he's at the end of himself, he says, I can't do this anymore. God steps in. And this is what we read. God sends an angel, a messenger, and the angel says, get up and eat. And I love this. For the journey is too much for you. <laughs> Think about that. Have you ever been in a season of your life where it just seems to be too much for you? I can't do this Ever at a point in your life where you just think, I just want to quit. That was me in Germany back then. I just want to quit. I can't do this. It's in that moment where if we're willing to just be honest about it, God comes in and says, you're right. You can't do this. But guess what? I'm going to feed you. I'm going to nourish you. I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to come in and I'm going to do something that only I can do to help you get through this. And that's what God does. In these kind of seasons, and guess what? Elijah is nourished. He goes to Horeb, and there in Horeb, he encounters God. How? In a still, small voice. And then in that moment, he can get through it. Here's the lesson. In this kind of season, often we struggle with burnout. Burnout is only permanent if we allow it to be. Don't listen to everything that you're tempted to believe when you're exhausted. In that season of life in Germany for me, I believed so many things about me that weren't true. Take time to care for yourself and then get back at it as Elijah did, as John Mark did. Church, what's true for them can be true for you. Failure does not have to define you. It can actually make you if you step into it. That's the hope. Secondly, failure is not only a scar that isn't fatal, scale, failure is a sin that can be forgiven. While the consequences after our failure on others is beyond our control, our response to our failure before others restores God's control. Think about that like this. Think about the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in Acts 7 and Acts 8 is a guy who was basically totally opposed uh, to the church, to the message of Christ. In fact, he stood there as Stephen, the first martyr, was being stoned and then was assigned to kind of purge out the Christians from within the Jewish community. And he would travel around trying to root out all of the Christians, and basically try and get rid of Christianity. And then he met Christ on the road to Damascus, got saved, and no one believed him. 
No one believed him. In fact, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago again, it's that guy Barnabas again, the son of encouragement, the guy who believes in people when, the, when apostles don't and when churches don't. That guy who actually believed in Paul. Paul wanted to meet the disciples, we read in Acts 9. The disciples didn't want anything to do with him. See, that's the point here, right? Paul had actually put his faith in Christ. He'd repented, which basically means he had turned around and was now living a totally different life to the one he was originally living. And that had restored God's control over his life. He'd been filled with the Holy Spirit. God was doing a work in his heart. But guess what? That didn't mean that the disciples accepted his conversion. He had no control over that. All he had control of is what he was doing. And then up steps Barnabas, the son of encouragement, met with Paul, knew that Paul was basically a genuine believer, and through Barnabas' encouragement, Paul and the church actually started to work together. You see, when you failed, and that failure is a sin that has hindered other people, the hope for you is not necessarily in the fact that you can now restore all of the relationships with everyone you've ever heard. That's not on you. All you can control is the response that you make to your sin before God. From that moment on, everything else is in God's providential care. What I love about Paul is how honest he is about who he was about what he'd done. I love this particular passage, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and look at this, of whom I am the worst. He didn't deny it. He didn't try and downplay what his sin was. He didn't try and play up to the people who he'd wronged. He just basically said, look, guys, you know my story. You know what I was, but this is who I am. It's easy to understand why the church had a hard time accepting him. I sometimes wonder why is it that the church spent so much time praying for people to come to Jesus, and when people come to Jesus, we can't believe that they're actually there genuinely, or even that they have the right to be there. Have you ever experienced that? Growing up in Wales, as I did as a teen, there was a season where there was a lot of gang stuff and everything else, and there was one guy who seemed to be at the heart of it. His name was, uh, was I've gone completely blank. Anyway, I'm going to call him John. I'll remember his name in a second. Uh, he basically uh, was at the ringleader of, of everything. And, uh, you know, we were praying as churches for all of this kind of stuff to stop and everything else. And, and one night, my friend Andrew told me that uh, the guy I'm calling John had actually knocked on his father's door at three o'clock in the morning. I said, Andrew, what happened? And he said, well, Craig, uh, basically what happened is that John came into the house and uh, oh, actually he knocked on the door and my dad opened the door. And as he opened the door, he looked at John and John said to him, do you remember me? And Paul, that's Andrew's dad, said, no, I don't. And, and John said, let me, let me tell you the story. His name is Tony. I've got his name. Tony's his name. There you go. And Tony looked at him and said, uh, do you remember me? No. He said, let me tell you the story. Many years ago, my brother and I came knocking on your door, singing Christmas carols, and the kind of idea is you sing carols and the, the people will give you money. And he said, you didn't give me money that day. You invited us into the house. You got all of your family together, and you had a big family. He did. There were like 10 or 11 kids. And he said, you asked us whether we knew who we were singing about. And I said, no, and you told us about Jesus. 
And he said, uh, my life is so messed up right now that I need to experience this Jesus because I need to turn my life around. So Paul prayed with him there and then. Sunday morning, Tony was in church. I tell you, all of the saints were sitting bolt upright. This guy had a reputation. He was known. Could God really save someone like that? Could God really forgive someone like that? That's this. That's what Paul's doing. It's easy to understand when you've been wronged by someone how horrific grace can be. There's a horrific side of grace that basically says it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter how low you've descended. God's grace is like water. It always reaches to the lowest point. Paul says, look, I fail. I am the chief of sinners. But for this very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. You know what Paul is saying here? It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how far you've sunk. God's grace can reach you right there. Failure is a sin that can be forgiven. That is the awesome nature of God's grace. And how does Paul end? Now, to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory forever and ever. And he's only just beginning that letter, but he needs to say right there, amen, because it is so true. It is so true. Now, there's another side to this, isn't there? Theologically, this is true. Experientially, this is true. It doesn't matter what you've done, okay? God's grace can reach you there. Grace is like water. It flows to the lowest point. But for those of us who come to faith in Christ later in life, there are often things about our life earlier in life that actually cause us so much guilt and so much shame. Right? We, we just think, Man, I was so stupid. How could I have done all of these things? And I think this is true. For those who put their faith and trust in Christ later in life, there are bound to be reasons that you feel unfit for salvation and unqualified for service. But the good news is this. The gospel is powerful enough to save you and to rescue your relationships. Yeah, amen. Tony, reconciled to his wife, and the last I heard of him, he was working as a custodian in a church in Germany. The guy who not even Christians believe could be turned around, had his sins forgiven, was restored in his marriage, and was serving Christ in an incredible way. That's the power of grace. And the later in life that you become a Christian, there are so many things that you may wrestle with, wondering whether God can forgive you. But church, grace is like water. It reaches to the lowest point. Failure is a sin that through Christ can be forgiven. There is no guilt. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, believe it because it's true and it can change your life in the way that it changed Tony's. Great example of this is King David. We know his story. Man after God's own heart and even men after God's own heart sometimes do stupid things. 
committed adultery with Bathsheba, tried to hide it by getting Uriah, Bathsheba's wife, home, and uh, kind of getting them together so that the, he could pass the baby off as Uriah's. Uriah was a man of integrity. While his troops were fighting on the field, he wasn't going to go and, and be with his wife. And so basically, he decides to stay there in the portico with all of the people guarding the palace. David then tells Joab, his commander, hey, on the battlefield, put Uriah at the front and then pull all the troops back from him. Uriah dies and basically everything seems good, except God spoke to the prophet Nathan, telling Nathan what David had done. Nathan goes and confronts David. David um, hears a story, and Nathan says, what do you think should happen to the man in this story? And David says, that person should be punished. And then Nathan looks at him and said, you are that man. What does David do with that? Deny it? Play up to Nathan? No, he writes Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, o God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, and David had them. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Of course, it has implications on others. That's not what David is saying. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And then he goes on, but God, even though all of this is true, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. How can he do that? Because he teaches from experience. It's the most powerful way of doing it, where God actually comes in, allows us to face our failure, transforms us so we don't hide it. We use it as a testimony of grace. So the sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God my Savior, my tongue will sin, uh, will sing of your righteousness. Friends, this is true. Repentance saves us, not necessarily from the consequences of our actions, but definitely from the eternal judgment for them. It doesn't matter what you've done. The good news of the gospel is God loves you and God forgives you. Receive it because it's true. So failure is a scar that isn't fatal. Failure is a sin that can be forgiven. And lastly, failure is also a test that can be overcome. Failure is a test that can be overcome. Failure is a test that brings us to the end of ourselves, if that is, we embrace that test and we switch from trying to love God because we failed. Okay, God, I've really messed up, so I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to love everybody. I'm going to, if we actually switch from I'm going to to God, I'm going to allow you to love me. I'm going to allow you to love me. I'm going to share a story with you I've actually never shared, apart from the first service, in my entire life. It's probably the moment in my life that I'm the most embarrassed about. It's not a moral issue. It's not an ethical issue. It's a spiritual issue. 
I was 15, 16 years of age, and my pastor had basically said, hey, I'd like you to go up to Les Isaacs Church in London. You remember Les, Jake from last fall? Uh, and uh, I went up there. I was the only white guy in his African church, an amazing experience for me. And uh, he would go around, and Les had an incredible ministry in London. And one night, he brought in this A-list team of people, incredible people, to go and do evangelism of this large Church of England church in London. And uh, I was invited to go along, and uh, we were in the room praying beforehand, and there was such a move of God in an incredible way. I'm looking around all of these people, and I think, man, God is going to do something awesome tonight, except I made a mistake. I said what I was thinking out loud and put a God said it to it. You know what, guys, as we're praying here, I just think God's saying, he's going to do something incredible in this place tonight. Well, we go through the whole thing, and guess what? The entire congregation are as hard as nails, and they sit there, and they don't even flinch. There was nothing. I have relived that moment for years and years and years. Every time I read the Old Testament and a false prophet needs to be stoned, I think that's me. And do you know what it did? It basically cramped me up. It did something good. It made me very cautious about trying to say what God is saying because sometimes experience and emotions actually lead us to think God is saying something when God is saying nothing of the sort. That's a good thing. But I'll tell you, emotionally, that's God me. I felt like a spiritual failure. I felt somehow I was disqualified. And then uh, a number of years ago, I was reading the story of Peter, and we're getting ready for Easter. I was still in ministry at this point, and this kind of experience is still there for me. And literally, folks, I, I would drive down the street, and sometimes this memory would come to me, and I would shake my head, and I would go, why did you do that? How could you have been so wrong? And it was public. People knew about it. Okay, there's only about 15 people there, but it was public. I felt awful. And then I started to read the, the story of Peter. And uh, you get to, you know, we're going to take communion, and, and we know the passage, right? Jesus says, hey, there's somebody going to betray you. And Peter's like, who's this? I'm not going to do that. And Jesus says, hey, Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me, what, three times? Lord, never do that. Yeah, you will. And then into my mind, and I believe that was from the Holy Spirit. I'm okay in saying that because it's from the Scriptures, by the way. I remember these words. This is Matthew 10. This is way before what Peter was about to do. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. What did Peter do? Peter disowned Jesus before other people. Hey, man, I do not know him. I am not with him. No, that's not me. Then the cock crows. And in that moment, Jesus looks at Peter, and the text says, Peter ran out and wept bitterly. The difference between Judas and Peter is Judas tried to right his own wrong rather than recognizing we can't right our own wrongs against God. Only Jesus can forgive. Peter weeps 
bitterly. And it was in that moment that the Spirit of God spoke a word into my heart saying, listen, Craig, when you have, when you have failed like this, you need to stop trying to earn my love for you, and you need to be at a place where you will allow me to love you. Because friends, when you've reached the end of the end, when you have reached your lowest point, when you are facing something that you are so ashamed of, the only thing you can do is to let God love you. Now, here's what I love. Peter's failure didn't disqualify him from Christ's plans. My failure did not disqualify me from Christ's plans. Neither does your failure disqualify you. Grace is like water. It reaches to the lowest point. And in that moment, failure is like a test. You have to overcome this thing. You have to overcome it. Now, how many of you have ever been wronged? It's at this moment, I want to flip the script a little bit and just talk to people in here who may be in a season in life where you have been wronged and you're finding it hard to forgive. We've been taught many times, and it's correct, that I think it was uh, Nelson Mandela who said uh, unforgiveness is like a poisonous pill that you wish for someone else and swallow yourself. And so often it's said, if we've been hurt by someone and we're wrestling with this, we're often told, aren't we? Hey, forgive them because unforgiveness is something that will eat you up from the inside out. It is something that can destroy your life. Don't allow that to happen. Forgive, it's good for you. And you know what? That's true. But what I want to suggest to you is that that's not necessarily the Christ-like response. The Christ-like response is not to think of yourself when you need to forgive others, but to think of others when they've hurt you. Look at the Scripture. This is that same passage. I'm never going to deny you. Yes, you will when the rooster rooster crows three times. And then Jesus says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back. what What did Simon Peter do after he failed? He went fishing. He stepped away, because the hardest thing to do when you failed is to step in. The easiest thing that you can do is to step away. Simon, I prayed for you, and when you've turned back, use your story to strengthen other people. Do you know what Jesus does here? He knows that he's going to be betrayed. But in advance, he looks at Peter and says, don't worry, Simon, I still love you. Jesus doesn't forgive Peter because it's good for Jesus. Jesus forgives Peter because it's good for Peter. For those of us who have been wronged, I want to suggest to you that if our prayer is, God, make me more like you, then maybe we need to start acting like the Jesus we're praying to become more like. That's to forgive because I really believe this with all of my heart. People experience hope from their failure when we, even when we're failed, 
act like the Jesus we want to be more like. Friends, failure is a scar, but it isn't fatal. We can grow through it. Failure is a sin that can be forgiven. Grace is like water. It reaches to the lowest point. There's nothing that you have done that God can't forgive you from. And thirdly, failure is a test that we can overcome. What do we need to do? Stop trying to earn God's love and allow the love of God to reach us. And that's the gospel. Paul says, John says it too, this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave Christ for us. Paul says, even before we knew about God, Christ died for us. 